From first to last, the Bible tells us that God is Lord of all things, and he is in control of everything. The writer to the Hebrews says that by faith, we understand the universe was created by God. And they also say that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is sustaining it right now. Psalm 104 celebrates this creation and sustaining of God. It says, oh Lord, how manifold are your works. Manifold means like really varied and amazing. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. Even the book of Proverbs, which is all about kind of taking responsibility and making good decisions, affirms that God is in control. Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. And Proverbs 16.33 says the lot is cast into the lap. That's like a, like a dice game or random chance, basically. But it's every decision is from the Lord. And Jesus said the same. He tells us to pray that God would give us bread every day and everything else that we need because he's reminding us that God is the source of all of those things. And he says, your father makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. As much as we understand uh, that the world we live in uh, and the universe and how it operates, operates according to uh, rules that we can uh, see and understand. But Jesus affirms that all those things are happening because God is continuing to make them happen. Jesus also says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. He's saying God knows and is involved in even the smallest things. All this and more in scripture should give God's people great confidence that he cares about them, that he is deeply and powerfully involved in their lives. So, What do you do with all this wonderful biblical truth when you're in a situation like Esther was? Esther is a character in the Old Testament, and she was born into an empire that had conquered her ancestors' lands, and they considered her God to just be one of many defeated deities. The culture she lived in was proud and unjust and evil. Being a Jew as she was, was potentially life-threatening. And so her guardian had encouraged her to hide her identity and take a non-Jewish name. And she had to have a guardian because her mother and father had both died when she was young. One day she is taken from her home to be part of the king's talent contest as he looks for a new queen. And the winner will be the woman who pleases him best when he has sex with her. It's hard to imagine how this situation could get any worse, but it does. Because one of the king's senior advisors will soon want to get revenge on Esther's guardian and all his people. And he will try to do this by persuading the king to legislate for the murder of all the Jews in his empire, which spans from India to Ethiopia. It's a desperate situation. 
And the book of the Bible, which tells us this story called Esther, in it, God never speaks. He never does any spectacular miracles. And in fact, he is not even mentioned by name. Now, here at King's, we believe that God speaks to us all the time, that he is speaking through his word timelessly, and that he will speak to us, inspiring us through his Holy Spirit, as Jen just shared earlier. But all of us have times where we feel like we we don't hear from him, and that he's not speaking directly to us. We also believe that the miracles recorded in the Bible are real, that God is able to do those things and is still able to do those things. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and if God did that, well, anything else is possible. But God doesn't always seem to act with the power that we long for. We believe that God is the Lord over everything, but we don't see everything happening as it should. Far from it, in fact in our own lives and around us, in the news, everywhere, in fact. And that leaves us with a question. Well, where is he? Where is God in our story? Where is he in Esther's story? Well, the Bible gives us plenty of language for those moments as well. It doesn't just tell us about how in control God is. It tells us about how people struggle to believe this. There are many, many stories of people suffering and and just being confused. And we have honest psalms in which people say things like this, Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 44. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Now, Some of us had experienced moments like this before the pandemic arrived, and we'd had to wrestle with this. I'm pretty sure now that all of us have had to wrestle with this. And I really think Esther's story helps us to do this well and to continue to believe God. And so we're going to look at it today. And even in this moment, even as I've kind of maybe stirred up some emotion or just reminded you of some reality that you're hoping not to think of for a few minutes, why don't we ask God to speak to us? even as we look at a story in which he doesn't seem to speak? Why don't we believe that he wants to do powerful things in us, even in our weakness and frailty in normal life? Lord, that's that's what we're asking for you to do today. Lord, we do wrestle with these things. We see what your word says and we believe it. And we also see our lives and our world and we struggle to believe it. God, I want to pray that you would give grace today to every person hearing this message. Lord, I really believe it's a significant message that there's things that you want to say to people that will be very specifically important to them. I want to ask you to give me grace and strength in my weakness. Yeah, we want to hear from you, God, and see you. Amen. Amen. Now, This book is essentially a single story, and so that's how I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to take us through the whole story rather than just focus on a specific uh, passage. As I do so, I'm going to pick up on some of the hidden and non-spectacular ways in which God is at work. We could summarize it with a famous verse in the New Testament, Romans 8, 28, which tells us that for those who love God, all things work together for good. But that is a statement that we make in faith 
as we look forward, but it's often easier to make as we look back. And Esther is a story on which we can look back and see this is true. So let's do that. So early on in the book, Esther wins this beauty contest, which is both deeply unpleasant and the way in which God's people will have access to the king to avert the genocide that is soon thwarted, that is soon threatened, sorry. And she wins the competition because, in the, in the words of the text, that she wins grace and favor wherever she goes. Now, we're told she's very beautiful, but there's something else in that statement that says, you know, there were, this is a vast empire. There were very many, many beautiful women who the king might have chosen, but there's something about Esther that's different, something that wasn't actually down to her. The writer is asking us to see that God was at work, even in the sickness of the king's competition. It's like when Joseph is sold into slavery and wrongly imprisoned, and therefore he is in precisely the right place to hear about and interpret Pharaoh's dream and then save all his people. The text isn't saying that this is okay. It isn't saying that if you're in an abusive or dangerous situation, you should stay in it. But it is saying that in these moments, God can still use it for good. We've all felt trapped in some ways or other, haven't we, since last March? Even in the moments of like restrictions being lifted, there's still, there's still some trapping in our hearts. And that's just a reflection on the reality that we're living in. It's been really hard. And we feel restricted. And that can make us see everything as restricted. But God is never restricted by our circumstances. Even a situation as desperate and horrible as Esther's, even a situation as seemingly hopeless as Joseph's, God wasn't just not restricted, he was working. If we will trust that he can work in our situations, he will do so. Now, soon after Esther becomes queen, her guardian, Mordecai, just happens to overhear a plot against the king. We're not told that he's like the police and he's looking out for things. It's just where he is, he overhears something. And because he is the guardian of Esther and he looks out for her every day, he hears this plot and he doesn't just think, oh no, something bad is going to happen to the king. He thinks, I can tell someone who can do something about this. And he tells Esther, she tells the king, and the plot is foiled and Mordecai's good deed is recorded in the king's book of Chronicles. And that just seems to be the end of this small little story, but it's important, and we'll come back to it later. And there are two acts of God's sovereignty then in this moment, Esther being made queen and Mordecai accidentally discovering a plot. But then there is human responsibility that has to follow this. Mordecai doesn't just think, oh, well, I've heard that's going to happen, so it's either going to happen or not. It's not up to me. No, Mordecai says, I've got something to do now. I need to act. And he tells Esther, and Esther doesn't just say, oh, that's interesting. She goes and tells the king. And and so they're, they're placed in a situation. They have to do what they can in that situation. And that is a dynamic that we will find ourselves in if we trust that God is going to work through us. Even when he seems silent, we, might, we, we can be in situations think, I think actually God is working in this. I think God's calling me to do something in this. Again, though I feel trapped, I'm not to be passive. And it's just this short, interesting story that kind of sows some seeds that are going to be reaped later on. Then, this horrible centerpiece of the whole thing, the plan to murder all of the Jews is announced. 
but it's delayed for nearly a year because the man hatching it, a guy called Haman, uh, he wants to know when either the fates or the gods or whoever it is that he's kind of trusting in, he wants to know when he should do this thing. And so it says that he casts lots. So like I said, it's like, he's just like rolling the dice and they're, they're casting lots to see when this should happen. And they keep casting lots and they keep casting lots. And eventually they're like, okay, in a year's time, this is going to happen. Do you remember what I said, quoting earlier, Proverbs, about casting lots? The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. We're meant to remember that proverb when we read this story. The, this genocide is announced in a year's time. This is what's going to happen. And the enemies of God's people all over the empire are really excited and they're plotting and they're planning. And God's people must have felt hopeless in that moment. But Mordecai tells Esther to go to the king. And he says to her, you are the one who can change this situation. And she says, well, maybe, but I will be killed if the king doesn't want to see me because he's that kind of guy. We've kind of established that already. And he hasn't paid any attention to her for a month at this point. Maybe she's just yesterday's news for him. He has a whole harem of women. God doesn't speak to her about this. God doesn't say in a kind of dramatic way. She doesn't receive a prophetic word. But she realizes that no one else has the opportunity that she has. And it's, it's actually a really powerful example that we don't always need direct guidance from God, especially when the right decision is obvious. Now, I know what it's like to have big decisions and try and work them out and really just want God to speak audibly. I totally get that. And he will do sometimes. And we, like I said, we believe him for that. But I've often found that God leaves us to make the decision and then backs us up afterwards. And I think that's kind of what Esther experiences. So she makes the decision. She says, okay, I'm going to do it. But please, everyone, pray for me. She asks all of God's people to fast and to pray before she goes to the king. So I'm going to go in three days' time, so let's pray. Now, fasting in the Old Testament is often a, usually a sign of, of great sadness and desperation. It's people saying, God, this is awful. Will you not break through? And so those psalms of lament that we read in the Bible where people are just desperate and and devastated, those are the kind of prayers these guys would have been praying at that time. They were real with God about the seriousness of the situation. They weren't some kind of weird triumphalism of like, everything's okay, but God, if you could just spare us all being killed, that would be amazing. That's not what they're saying. They're saying, God, are you going to allow us all to be wiped out? Our prayers must be real. We don't, we're not trying to fool God. We're not trying to put on a face before him because he knows all things. And I think sometimes people think that being honest in that way is, like a, is, is doubting God. But I don't think it is because there is faith in that addressing God because it's still addressing him. It's still saying, God, I don't even know where you are or what you're doing, but will you please do something? That's a statement of faith. Psalm 10 takes us through a journey. It begins, like I said, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? And it ends, O Lord, you hear 
the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their hearts. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. I wonder if that verse is for some of you. who That word fatherless, I know it's kind of obvious it's Father's Day. I hadn't thought about that even when I included this. But maybe that verse is just resonating for you right now. God will incline his ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So maybe that is for you. I think it's the kind of thing these guys were praying as well. I often talk, when I'm talking about praying, about praying God's promises and praying his precedent, the things that he said and the things that he's done. And I'm sure that's what these guys prayed about because they were facing the extermination of their people, but they knew that God had made a promise to them. God had promised their father Abraham that their descendants would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. He had promised their ancient King David that David would have a successor from his line whose reign would never end. And God had, of course, rescued them before, most famously the Exodus. And they apply all these facts to this present situation. They don't say, well, maybe those things didn't really happen. They don't say, well, maybe God didn't really mean it. They say, God, you said this, you did this, so now fulfill your promises. Do again what you're able to do. That's how we use these things to wrestle with these moments. All this is why Esther believes that God alone can decide this situation. Again, Proverbs backs this up. Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. If that's the case, then they should pray to him. As Chris mentioned earlier, uh, we have been praying this week. We've been seeking God, particularly for six aspects of church life that we think are really important uh, for the coming months. And we've been encouraging you to to try and hear uh, from God. I I know some of you will have done that and just think, wow, God really spoke to me. And others of you will have been like, oh, this is hard. I'm not very good at it. Listen, even if you don't feel you've heard from God, he has heard you. He has heard your prayers. And as we keep asking him, he will keep hearing and he will keep answering. Now, we don't know how Esther felt after that time of prayer and fasting. We don't know if she went in full of faith or petrified or both. But we're told again that she goes into the king's court and what happens? She wins favor in his sight. And he says to her that he'll do whatever she asks. And again, we feel that back and forth through this process. Esther's only where she is because of God's sovereignty. She therefore agrees to take a step of faith, agrees to to trust in God. But before she does that, she asks that God comes and acts. And when she's given time God to act, she then acts. And so God then gives her the favor that she needs. This is this back and forth dynamic that God's people live with. And again, there's no mention of God saying a thing. She doesn't know if he's with her until the king says, yes, come forward. How wonderful to see you. I'd forgotten all about you or something equally hopeless, whatever he does. In that moment of this foolish, frail, stupid man and this woman's faith, God works. 
Now, even as this is happening, at the very same time, Haman wants to get his holocaust started by murdering Mordecai. He hates Mordecai the most out of all of them. And so he builds this enormous, it's like a scaffold or a stake to kill Mordecai on. And he goes to see the king to say, I want to kill Mordecai. Can I have permission? But the very night before he does that, the king can't sleep. And the king's like, well, how am I going to get to sleep? I know. Let's tell me some of the stories of the things that have happened in my kingdom. And so his chronicler, his reader, comes to him and just is reading things that happen and just so happens to read the story of how Mordecai foiled the plot against the king. And the king's like, oh, Mordecai, I remember that guy. What did we do for him, for his brilliant service there? And the book says, you did nothing, O king. And the king's like, right, okay, well, first thing in the morning, we need to honor Mordecai. We need to get him some glory. And so first thing in the morning, Haman walks in to say, King, I want to kill Mordecai. But before he can open his mouth, the king says, Haman, I want you to honor and bless Mordecai. This is grievously embarrassing for Mordecai. And he just hates it. And he has to do it because he knows the king will kill him otherwise. And then he just goes home and he's like, I cannot believe the day I've had. And he receives a very telling piece of commentary from his wife and counselors who are at his home. They say to him in Esther 6.13, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. When I was reading that and thinking about it, it reminded me of a statement that was made about the early church. They were a very unimpressive bunch. They were small in number. They were outnumbered. But a man says of them in Acts chapter 5, If this plan... Or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. And Jesus says in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that's us. That's us. If we're God's people, we are in this victory. We are in this great triumph that cannot be overcome. Revelation talks about the enemy, the Satan. He's furious, and we experience his fury and his anger and his evil. But it says he's furious because he knows his time is short, because he knows he's been defeated. We must remind ourselves again and again that we are victorious in Christ. And this impossibility of defeating God is swiftly proved in the story as things rapidly get worse for Haman because he goes to this feast with Esther and, uh, and the king and the king says, Esther, you keep teasing me. What do you want me to do? And, the, and she says, king, there is a man who wants to kill me and all of my people. And the king says, no way, I will kill him. And she says, it's that guy right there. And Haman can't believe it because he doesn't know she's a Jew. And this, again, another scheme of his is suddenly turned on his head. The king is absolutely raging. Uh, Haman is panic-stricken. He's, I don't know if he like kind of just grabs her to say, please help me or something like that, but you shouldn't do that to the queen in front of the king. The ki- and as he grabs her, the king's like, out of here right now. Kill him right now. And on the very scaffold or stake that he made to kill Mordecai, Haman is killed. And Esther and then Mordecai then lead the king in making an order that the Jews be allowed to defend themselves against all those who've spent the last year planning to murder them. And then in an echo of Joseph and Daniel's stories, Mordecai is made prime minister. Without saying 
a word or doing anything outside of his usual laws of nature, look what God has done. The powerful would-be murderer of Mordecai has been killed and Mordecai has been raised to authority. Rather than being slaughtered, God's people have routed their enemies. And a woman dragged into the king's harem is now directing his business. The Jews celebrate this great reversal, this great deliverance, by instituting a new festival. And it's called Purim, Purim, which is the word for casting lots, which was exactly what Haman had been doing, you remember, back in the story when he was planning their destruction. And this festival is a remembrance of what had happened. Specifically, it's a remembrance of what God had done. So that at other times, when he seems silent, when he seems absent, his people might not give up hope. Because every year this festival will come round and say to them again, no, remember, remember, even in the casting of lots, he's at work. And... and, Kind of understandably, the way they celebrate Purim is by feasting and celebrating. It's a feast. And it's really interesting that actually throughout the book, there are loads and loads of feasts. It's quite, there's like 10 chapters, and there are at least six feasts in it. And it's like they're little signposts of the celebration to come because this book is written to explain why this feast happens. It's read at the time of the feast. And so if you're, if you're, if you're at a feast celebration and you keep reading a book that says, and then they had a feast, and then they had a feast, and then they had a feast, you're like, oh yeah, I'm about to have a feast. This is great. Those are signposts. And in the same way, the story of Esther is one of many signposts in God's word and throughout history of what is to come. And of God's great story. Just as Esther went to the king to intercede on behalf of her people, even at the risk of her life, so Jesus didn't just risk his life, but gave it to come before the king and to plead for his people that they might be delivered. Just as Esther's story is a dramatic reversal of circumstances, so Jesus turns the whole world upside down by raising from the dead. And he will do so again when he returns to make all things new and judge all people. And so whatever hardships we are going through now, we find ourselves in a story in which there is a deliverance promised and a festival of celebration to come which shall never end. This story doesn't tell us that things are always going to go as we want them to go. But it does show us that God is able to work even in the worst of circumstances. And the perspective of Christians who are able to see the crucifixion of their Lord as the moment of hope, therefore is always hopeful. 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God is invisible to our eyes you know, most of the time. I'm not expecting to see him with my eyes whilst I'm alive. 
But if we will look with faith, we will be able to discern his presence. If we keep trusting him, living faithfully, obediently, even when everything seems hopeless, we will see his will be done. If we keep asking him to intervene and thanking him for every evidence of his goodness, we will see it, whether there's a natural explanation for it, whether it seems like a coincidence or not.